Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll hear about a new publication for Denver's Black community. Black people seeing themselves in like a real newspaper and overwhelmingly seeing themselves was just very positive. Plus, we'll talk about the prevalence of racism towards Asian American people in the West. And we'll reflect on the legacy of KUNC's longtime president and CEO as he gets ready to retire. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. America has been facing a racial reckoning since the police killing of George Floyd last May. The trial for one of the officers involved, Derek Chauvin, started this week. But a less acknowledged part of the conversation is the racism Asian Americans endure. And as KUNC's Robin Vincent reports, the recent shootings in Atlanta come as no surprise to some Asian Americans living in the Mountain West. The recent mass shootings in the Atlanta area that left eight people dead, including six women of Asian descent, focused attention on the rise of anti-Asian racism. And with all the generations represented here, we can fix this. Pasha Eve is a Korean-American community organizer who spoke at this anti-Asian hate rally in Denver. It was a lot of clenched jaw, tears rolling down our face, fierce determination, grieving She's spoken at dozens of community-organized events over the years, but this is the first time she got emotional during her speech. And I wept for these women, and I wept because I was not surprised when I got news that this had happened at all. The news was also no surprise to Jennifer Ho. Ho studies race and ethnicity at University of Colorado Boulder and is the daughter of Chinese immigrants. I thought, yeah, this is what it means to live a life of precarity and vulnerability as an Asian American person. Authorities haven't ruled the Atlanta shootings a hate crime yet. The suspect blamed his sex addiction for his attack on three Asian American-owned spas. Ho says a tendency to dehumanize Asian American women is inextricably linked to racism. It's happened since the first wave of Asian, in this case Chinese women, entered U.S. shores. It's the association of Asian women with sex because they were forced into sexual servitude. Ho draws a line to racist policies of the past enacted against Asian Americans. Take the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 that barred Chinese people from immigrating to the U.S., and then the internment of Japanese Americans in incarceration camps across the West during World War II. That was acceptable to an American public because there had been almost a century of anti-Asian propaganda leading up to it. That's Ora Newland. Her great-grandparents and other family members were imprisoned at one of those camps in Heart Mountain, Wyoming. Newland studies sociology and anthropology at Wyoming's Northwest College. She says, fast forward to the COVID-19 pandemic today, 
in the words of our former president. The China virus, Kung flu, the Wuhan virus. After Trump first tweeted Chinese virus, the use of that hashtag and other anti-Asian hashtags skyrocketed. Meanwhile, over the last year, the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism reported a nearly 150% rise in anti-Asian hate crimes across 16 of America's largest cities. I just knew it was a matter of time. That's Korean-American artist Argus Paul Estabrook. He's been anticipating an attack like the shootings in Atlanta. It's sickening because people are dead, and, and it's squarely because of this snowballing effect of hate and misplaced blame. The New Mexico photographer launched the project I Am Not a Virus last November. It's a stirring collection of self-taken photos and words from Asian Americans who've experienced racism since the onset of the pandemic. He says as an Asian American, he grapples with invisibility. Often, I don't have a voice, quite frankly. And he says when he and other Asian Americans do have a platform. We have to always have a good face on to be respected or taken seriously. Estabrook has struggled against the pervasive myth of widespread Asian American success, often called the model minority stereotype. It portrays Asian Americans as a monolith and is used to dismiss the reality of racism against this incredibly diverse group. Estabrook says during the pandemic, the pressure he's felt has been stifling. The idea that you have to always be like 110% or, or even higher and doing that in isolation to pretend that this hateful rhetoric isn't affecting you, it's just so difficult. Estabrook has faced a lot of racism over the years, but he says the recent rise is overwhelming. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Robin Vincent. This week, Attorney General Merrick Garland ordered a 30-day review of how the Justice Department can best deploy its resources to combat hate crimes during a surge in incidents targeting Asian Americans. In a memo, it cites the, quote, recent rise in hate crimes and hate incidents, particularly the disturbing trend in reports of violence against members of the Asian American and Pacific Islander community since the start of the pandemic. Last month, residents of Denver's 80205 zip code opened their mailboxes to find the very first edition of a new publication called the Five Points Atlas. It's an actual printed paper intended to highlight the history of the Five Points neighborhood as well as feature new businesses and cultural attractions. The paper aims to foster black journalism in a predominantly white state. The co-founders of the Five Points Atlas are here with us now. Quan Atlas, who is editor of the publication, and Major Morgan. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hey, how's it going? So you launched the Five Points Atlas in the middle of a pandemic. Um, first of all, I want to say congratulations. That takes some, uh, some guts. What inspired you to start the paper, first of all, and to launch it now? Major Morgan and I actually met in the Downtown Denver Partnership Leadership Program. The Walton Street Renaissance Project was something that put us right in conversation with many of the residents um, and business owners on the Walton Street Corridor. 
And um, one of the property managers and realtors remarked that five new businesses had opened on Walton Street during the pandemic and nobody knew about it. And so a light bulb went off in my head and I said, you know, this this is something that needs to happen. And so we started talking about what if we created a newspaper and then that would have turned into a full-blown newspaper that people are going to get every month. I love it. Did you have any concerns or just second thoughts because of the pandemic? Can we really get this pulled together? I didn't necessarily have concerns. I was actually more so inspired in the fact that, you know, we're all at home, we're all cooped up, but still there's things happening in the neighborhood. And so we can get the word out. I thought it was just super important you know, just felt more creative than I've ever been um, before because of the pandemic. For listeners who aren't familiar, this might be a good point to learn a little bit about the history and the cultural heritage of the Five Points neighborhood. Why is that the focus of the Atlas? During the 20s, 30s, and 40s, Black people could not leave this area within Denver, and they had to create their own businesses. So, for instance, our first edition had on the front page, a new salon that opened up. That was something that was very common in the area. Black-owned salon, but it hadn't, we hadn't had one on Walton Street for a very long time until most recently. The businesses and the artists are truly inspiring what we get to cover, and it's very important to highlight this moment of uh, resurgence. A newspaper that highlights Black businesses, Black artists, Black professionals. Why... Do you feel a city like Denver needs something like this? It's, it's definitely fulfilling a need that hasn't been met. Major Morgan is actually a perfect example. He's someone who came from uh, another state, um, Tennessee, which has a lot more black people, comes here and for the first year and a half, he didn't know where the black people were and what they were doing. Yeah, um, I moved here um, back in July of 2019 because you know coming from Nashville, we're in like 26% you know, African-American descent in the metro area. It was really appalling to come to an area that was um, really less than that in Denver. And so there's lots of uh, professionals um, who are moving here, young professionals in general of all different colors, um, and they don't know the history and, and where the community is. And so uh, that's that's super important. And then I think just for the community that does live here, obviously this used to be almost 100% Black and Latino area is now more like 80% Caucasian. I think it's important for the residents who live here to still know the history as well as know their neighbors in the community that's still there and present and why it's called Five Points and why there's jazz on uh, first Fridays and, and different things like that happening in the community. Your first edition was mailed out to every household in the 80205 zip code in Denver. Are you planning to continue putting it out as a, a hard copy or will the paper exist primarily online in the future? We want to maintain this model as long as possible. We're paying that extra cost of postage to send it to everyone in 80205 so that it can really be that community paper where um, you can find out what's going on. It's free of cost to the people who receive it. You don't have to subscribe or pay a fee. And even if you go to our website, there isn't a paywall and there's no limit of articles that you can read. So you can really just dive in. And I think that's super important that we can continue to do it like this. What's been the response so far? Yeah, so I think the responses have been great overall. We're just a positive newspaper. It's about positive news. You know, you can't lose when you're doing positive stuff. 
And then I'll, I'll say another thing too. One thing that I heard that was particularly powerful was just like black people seeing themselves in like a real newspaper and overwhelmingly seeing themselves was just very positive. But that's kind of that's kind of the sentiment that people heard is just like, wow, you know, see beautiful black people on the newspaper. Wow, you know, it really meant really meant a lot to me. I love that. Where do you both see this project going? What does the future look like for the Five Points Atlas? Right now, we, we just want to continue to um, work on our sustainability, um, find new writers and new voices to uplift, keep it going as long as possible. And then I'd love to help other publications within the Black community and we can share information and, and, and make all of the media that happens across different neighborhoods more accessible. I'd love to do that. And then potentially uh, we could expand the reach of, of the Atlas and maybe to other neighborhoods or parts of Colorado and even um, potentially explore this model in other cities and states that have neighborhoods similar to Five Points with this historic history of redlining and gentrification and really uh, a commitment to bouncing back. What about you, Major? There's a lot of things that are in the works. I don't want to say particular parties, but we have some very upscale producers that would be interested in helping sharing sharing our story from the paper and even the community on a bigger scale to say the least um, we also want to do more high quality events that are centered around networking and um, general just growth of the community in an economic sense a lot of our community you know we're on our own thing doing our own thing here own thing there but it's like hey Maybe you have a business, maybe this person doesn't have a business and we don't kids that want to start nonprofits and stuff like that. And so how can we get these two people in a room? Quan Atlas and Major Morgan are co-founders of the Five Points Atlas. Quan and Major, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us, Aaron. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Henry Zimmerman. It's hard to do, but this week we're saying goodbye to one of our own at KUNC. Longtime president and CEO Neil Best will be doing the ultimate mic drop on Friday. My colleague Aaron O'Toole, who's worked with Neil for more than a decade, sat down with him for one last conversation. Neil, you're retiring April 2nd after how many years? It's about 48 years. Can you talk about how you got your start in radio? Well, in high school, I helped out a a guy who was working nights at the radio station in Fort Morgan, KFTM. But he wanted to be uh, move up the journalistic ladder, so I would go cover stories, bring him back to the studios. He would write him up and submit him to AP so that his name got out there. Uh, then went off to college uh, to, to become a debate coach. Uh, as things worked out, I ended up going back to graduate school and started hanging out with uh, fellow grad students who were at the radio station, and uh, they all left for careers in law and education, and I never left. You just stayed. You found your home. You found your calling. Started with a program that my friend Gene Dwyer started. It was called Where We Was, and it was rock and roll from the 50s and 60s on a Saturday night before there was the oldie genre of radio We did it on Saturday nights. You've been really active in the world of public radio. How would you describe the role that you've played in the the evolution of of national public radio? Well, um, 
I've always had the opportunity to participate uh, at, at different levels of, of public radio, both nationally and regionally and locally. And I think the thing that I have brought to the table is, is that I have stayed at a smaller station and I've represented the values uh, that, that are found, uh, of recognizing that uh, uh, there are different stories and there are different ways of doing things. And uh, it's easy in the world of broadcasting to think top 10 markets and that everybody wants to be at a top 10 market and that the top 10 markets are what matter the most. I've been one of the voices that said, hey, we're here too. There have been a lot of changes across the radio industry since you've been involved. What stand out to you as the most earth-shaking or just notable? I would say the biggest change has been the responsibilities have changed. Most commercial stations now are part of publicly held corporations. There's a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders that I understand and respect, but it means the days where little radio stations in towns of 8,000 would have three or four news people. Those don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. An awful lot of places that maybe employed 30, 40 people 30 years ago now employ a half dozen because everything is automated. Even when you get to the major markets, there are not that many news organizations at radio stations anymore. Uh, we talk about the news deserts in Colorado, 20% of all community newspapers have disappeared in the last 10 years. You could say the same thing about radio newsrooms. Public radio has been a little different, and certainly what's happened with the KUNC newsroom mm-hmm. uh, in the last 10 years is a different story than that. If you were to ask me my proudest achievement, it would probably be the size, the professionalism, the depth of of our newsroom. We are now the largest newsroom north of Denver. Any media, whatever media you want to talk about, large isn't necessarily the best way to uh, describe quality, but I think we have the quality as well as the quantity. And if uh, I were to say there's one thing that I'm proud of my legacy is that when we left the University of Northern Colorado, I made a commitment that we were going to grow the news organization. When we moved into the home we're in now, I insisted we build additional studios. And people said, why? Everybody's going to desk editing. And I said, because we're going to have to build the newsroom because local journalism is in trouble. I don't say that with glee. I say that with great sadness. But it's the reality, and I'm glad we've been able to respond well, let's talk about what happened in 2001. That was a very momentous time for KUNC. It's a long story that I can take 15 minutes talking about, but, <laughs> but in essence, uh, in early February 2001, we were told that the station was to be sold to Colorado Public Radio the following day. The decision had been made, simply waiting ratification from the Board of Trustees. We found out about it at 9 a.m. in the morning. My staff wanted to have a bake sale or a fundraiser, and I said, folks, this, that isn't going to work, number one. And number two, if this happened anyplace else along the front range, how would we break the story? Well, when all things considered comes on this afternoon, I said, that's what we're doing here. I said, you can notify your families, but there's an embargo till 3 o'clock. Between 3 o'clock in the afternoon and the next morning, the president's office received literally hundreds of emails at a time when email was not that popular. 
More than 20, 25 people showed up that morning to protest and ask that uh, they that they consider alternative uh, sales, including to the community that had supported KUNC. The Board of Trustees decided to put out an RFP. We had 20 days to come up with a, a proposal that we knew was going to have to be nearly $2 million. When we left the meeting, the media wanted to talk to me, and I said, I have to first thank the folks that came here. And a woman stepped up and said, I'm a non-traditional student, single mother. The university's making a bad decision. Here's a check for $250, but you can't cash it to February because it's my, it's my income tax return and I don't have it yet. And that wow. set the stage for a 20-day campaign. Nancy D'Albagaria, one of my uh, friend's co-chairs, along with Pat Thomas, said we could not get an April 30, uh, a March with 31 days and April 30 days. We couldn't even get a leap year. Uh, <laughs> we had 20 days. The community, the community raised more than $2 million cash in 20 days and thus was uh, born the Community Radio for Northern Colorado as a community-licensed radio station. It's such an incredible story of people rallying to save something that they care about. People ask about the gifts, and quite honestly, I mentioned the first gift. The second gift I would mention is of the first-ever million-dollar gift to public radio. The third gift I would mention is a very public $250,000 gift from uh, our dear friend Tom Sutherland, who had been in a hostage in Beirut, much-beloved professor at CSU, and then literally hundreds and hundreds of people who gave everything from $5 in their piggy bank up to, to you know Tom's gift and the gift of our friends who gave a million dollars and that first gift of 250 You don't have to pick just one moment to be proud of. If I may suggest... The creation of the Colorado Sound. Talk about that. A number of years ago, I realized that being what's called a joint format, news in the morning and afternoon and music in the middle of the day, was not working as well uh, for the listening audience as it had at one point. We had two choices. We could have just dropped music and become an all-news station. Um, But as we looked at it, we see... um, We've had a long heritage of, of, of offering music as an important part of the cultural fabric and didn't want to let that go. And as we see the music scene in northern Colorado grow, which I distinguish from the Denver music scene, theaters that exist in, in Greeley, Fort Collins, up the Poudre Canyon, in Loveland, Longmont, and Boulder are all very distinct from Denver. So there's a music culture here. And when the opportunity came for us to purchase a station and continue our commitment, part of our mission statement, we talk about enriching, and uh, music is an important part of that. So being able to add the music station while allowing KUNC to become an all-news and information station uh, was certainly uh, a lot of work and a lot of dedication by a lot of people, but I think it's been the right thing to do. Because you've been in this business for so long, I know you must have some favorite moments, favorite people. Could you share one or two? You know, 48 years, there's too many moments, too many people to really single out. Um, I'll say how much fun I had when I first was working Saturday nights, uh, spinning records that lasted two minutes, and being here every Saturday night with my wife, Joyce, hanging out with me. I guess my, my children coming in to help during membership drives. Uh, The fact that my uh, 
oldest son, Brian, spent several years on the advisory board of KRCC, the public radio station um, in Colorado Springs. And um, I have a public radio family, which I hate to lose day to day. People from across the country, a lot of people talk about blood relatives being close. My my family is not necessarily blood relatives across the country, cousins, that sort of a thing. It's the people I've known for many years and worked with. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my, 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 my best friend of more than 35 years, Scott Williams, uh, who retired a couple of years ago at KJZZ in Phoenix. What's next for you in retirement? What are you planning to do? Well, my, my joke line has been that it's the first job I've quit in 48 years. I don't know exactly what retirement will hold. It's going to be uh, number one, I guess, is when the kids call and say, hey, could you come be with the grandkids today? The answer is going to be yes, not, oh, I have this meeting or I have that to do. Secondly, I continue on the board of directors for Colorado Humanities, and I just started a term uh, uh, on the board of directors of seminars at Steamboat Springs. We'll see where it goes from there. We'll see what Joyce is willing to put up with. That's Neil Best, president and CEO of Community Radio for Northern Colorado. From the staff of KUNC, and I speak for the Colorado Sound as well, thank you so much for all that you have done for this organization. We're, we're really going to miss you. Well, whatever I've done has always been made possible by the community. So my thanks to the community and to the staffs who've been so supportive for almost five decades. That was Neil Best, who's retiring from KUNC after 48 years with the station. And as we say goodbye to Neil, we also say hello and welcome to Tammy Terwelp, who is KUNC's new president and CEO. She'll be here starting on Monday, April 5th. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll head up to Durango, where the tourism office is hiring people to dress like cowboys and enforce the city's mask mandate. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.